0: Breaking news, did Israel know that more than a year ago about Hamas's plan to attack and were the warnings actually ignored? Tonight on Laura Coates Live. You know, when I actually first heard about this story, I'm going to tell you, I had to actually read it twice because I thought, there's no way that this is right, is it? And are you telling me, all of us, that it's possible that Israel was aware that Hamas planned to attack Israel? Well, let me just change the word here, because aware aware seems to make it feel like it was just an inkling that they may have had a hint something may be coming. But The New York Times is reporting tonight that it wasn't an inkling. It was a 40-page battle plan, and they had it more than a year ago, a year before terrorists slaughtered some 1,200 men, women, and children and took more than 200 people hostage. The Times goes on to report that Israeli military and intelligence officials dis- dismissed the plan as aspirational, thinking it was too difficult for Hamas to carry out. The Times reviewed the approximately 40 page document. It's codenamed Jericho Wall by the Israelis, and it laid out in chilling detail and it went point by point exactly the kind of invasion. What they didn't actually have was the date of when it would happen. Now, we know now that date was October 7th. But here's what we still don't know tonight. We don't know where the rest of the hostages are. We don't know how many there really are out there. We don't know who has them and we don't know what happens if or when the truce will end. And then what happens next? You know, time is running out. We don't know if in just about, what, 59 minutes, the truce will extend or the fighting will resume. We're literally sitting here waiting minute by minute for those answers. But when Hamas is unable to release any more women and children alive, the understanding is that Israel will relaunch its military campaign and the military wing of Hamas is calling for its forces to remain on what they're calling high combat readiness. So what happens next? And there is breaking news tonight. Right now, the IDF saying that Israel has intercepted one rocket that was launched from the Gaza Strip. Joining me now, CNN chief national security correspondent Alex Marquard and foreign policy analyst Barack Ravid. Alex, first of all, as we're talking about this and wondering when the truce will end and if it will and what might happen 59 minutes from now or so, what are we learning right now?
1: Well, a troubling development for this extremely fragile pause that has been in place for the past seven days. We've been waiting all day to hear whether Hamas would present Israel with another list of hostages they plan to release tomorrow. Instead, what we are seeing... Uh, what we are hearing and what we are learning is that uh, Israel has now intercepted one rocket that was fired recently, just moments ago, from uh, the Gaza Strip. It was intercepted by Israel's aerial defense. Uh, we've also heard sirens, or sirens have been heard in Sterot, that is in southern Israel, right near. Uh, the Gaza Strip so we had been waiting to see whether uh, there was news from any of the parties involved about uh, this hostage deal for tomorrow I should note not to downplay it, but this is one rocket. Uh, we have in the past seen barrages of rockets, so it's really hard to say uh, what is going on here. But we have been pressing our sources. I know Barak Ravid is doing the same thing, uh, trying to reach out to the Qataris, the Egyptians who have been mediating with Hamas, the U.S., who, of course, have been central to this deal, and, and, and then Israel uh, as well, to find out whether they expect this uh, pause to go into an eighth day. Now, last night, it looked like things were on the rocks as well. Uh, there were. Several lists, we understand, that were put forward to the Israelis that were rejected because they did not have enough women and children alive on them. At the end, at the very last minute, excuse me, right before... The clock struck 12 Eastern time, which it's about to, and 56 minutes from now, and 7 o'clock in the morning in Israel. There was a list that was accepted. Eight hostages were released today. There had been two released the, the day prior for a total of 10. So there is still a chance that Hamas comes through in the next 55 minutes with a list that is acceptable to Israel. But there is also a decent chance that they don't, at which point Israel has warned that the fighting would start Uh, Immediately uh, between Israel and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. Laura?
0: I mean, Barack, you've been working your sources as well and seeing this, and obviously this is very different than what happened the initial days of releasing hostages, the numbers, the ratio to Palestinian detainees and prisoners as well. Here we are now, less than an hour away from this latest deadline, and one rocket, it's true, but the question now, Barack, do you think that Israel is going to respond, And, and does somehow, does this mean the end of the truce even before this deadline?
2: Well, I think the IDF uh, has been taking uh, several measures in the last few hours as a sort of precaution for the possibility that at 7 a.m. or a bit before uh, there will be uh, uh, some sort of an attack from um, Gaza if the ceasefire will not be uh, extended. But at least I think at that moment, uh, I agree with Alex that I think we should. Wait, there's still, you know, 55 minutes until uh, 7 a.m. local time, uh, and it is one rocket. Uh, and in the, you know, sort of dialogue that Israel and uh, and Hamas are, are doing from time to time through, uh, uh, you know, airstrikes and rocket fire, this could be just a sort of a signal
0: mm. uh,
2: and not a decision to go all out and, uh, you know, stop the ceasefire.
0: I'll remind people, of course, just... Less than 24 hours ago, we were in a similar position, and it really did go down right to the wire by that final deadline, and here we are again today. But you know what came in earlier, Brock? I know you've been seeing this, the New York Times report. I mean, what they have reported is truly a devastating indictment of Israeli intelligence. And I'm wondering, we just outlined it earlier, about um, having some 40-page battle plan of sorts from Hamas, not the date- not the specificity of when exactly it would happen, but the fact that there was this plan in place and details and point by point. How will Israelis react to all this, given that there were questions about intelligence failures being pursued and investigated?
2: Well, I think it's it's pretty clear by now that the problem that the Israeli intelligence had was not that it did not know what Hamas uh, was planning, The problem was that the analysis of the, you know, mountain of uh, uh, information that Israeli intelligence had, the analysis was just wrong, Uh, and um, the sort of um, premise that Israeli intelligence had was that Hamas is deterred, and uh, it's not going to do anything, regardless of all the information they had about what Hamas is planning, what kind of exercises they're doing. And this was the problem. The problem was the analysis. And the result we've seen in the last two months.
0: You know, the report does say, I want to be clear, that there is no evidence that Netanyahu actually saw the report. But I do wonder about the fallout and, of course, his position within Israel in particular. Can he avoid the fallout? Is this really going to come down to simply the analysis of the data before it would reach him or something more?
2: I think it's not only the, intelli- the intelligence failure is one thing here, but there's uh, policy failure. And the policy failure is that if you're the prime minister for almost 15 years before the, uh, the war, you know, at the end of the day, you're the one in charge. Uh, you know, as uh, they say, the buck stops here. So until now, then Netanyahu did not say that, he did not take responsibility. And you know, if you're the prime minister. You're in charge of what's happening in the country. And if you're the prime minister for 15 consecutive years, then, you know, you're even more in charge.
0: Let's talk about the reaction here at home, Alex. I do wonder how the U.S. is reacting to this news, the administration. Have you heard anything yet?
1: Well, no, not yet. The, the administration had said in the wake of October 7th that there was no indication uh, that that, this, that these attacks were coming. Um, the U.S is, is, has said and, and will continue to say that this was uh, an Israeli intelligence failure. There, there's a good chance that since October 7th they have learned about this analysis and they have learned about this report because certainly um, they will be asking Israel, which is one of their closest intelligence sharing partners, what on earth happened and this may this has as we now know, surfaced uh, since then. What we have reported, Laura, is that there was a series of reports and assessments, both Israeli and American, um, that had been briefed uh, here in Washington to members of Congress, to members of the administration, warning a bit more generally about the possibility of a Hamas attack. Uh, One said that rockets could be fired across the border into Israel, which frankly has been quite a common occurrence. We've seen several rounds like this. There are flare-ups. The rockets are then intercepted by the IDF, and essentially, uh, everyone goes on with their lives. And so there certainly was not an expectation that this kind of operation uh, was was about to take place on, on such an extraordinary scale. Um, the, the U.S. does not have a lot of visibility by themselves into Gaza and, and into Hamas, they rely a lot on the Israeli, uh, the various Israeli intelligence agencies. Uh, and so what uh, the administration has said both publicly and privately is is this really was uh, an Israeli intelligence failure and, and they do expect there to be repercussions uh, for the heads of those different agencies, Laura.
0: Alex Marquard, Barack Ravid, we shall see what comes next. Perhaps the luxury of an analysis is something that we can't look at when you have the ongoing issues of today. Thank you both. I want to bring in CNN military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton, also CNN National Security Advisor Peter Bergen. Colonel Layton, let me begin with you here, because we know now from the breaking news that there has been a rocket. It's been launched from Gaza. We know it's one. It was initiated by the IDF. But is this what you would expect for a resumption of fighting? Or is this, as Barack uh, noted earlier, a signal as opposed to maybe... Um, a, a stopping of that pause.
3: Yeah, Laura, good evening. I think that uh, it's it's more like what Barack has said because, uh, you know, it's just one rocket uh, and uh, it was intercepted by the IDF. It's a signal that Hamas is ready to fight if it needs to fight. Uh, and it was a warning to Israel, uh, but of course the Israelis responded by knocking that uh, that missile down. Uh, so at the moment we're in the warning and signaling stage of this. Uh, it could go uh, any in any direction, uh, but at the moment I would say, Laura, uh, we're in that phase where we're waiting for something to happen in terms of let's get uh, you know let's get this uh, truce extended or not. Uh, but in this particular case, I think they're they're hoping for an extension on the Hamas side as well for their reasons. Uh, but at this point, that's where it, where it stands in my view.
0: I want to talk about this New York Times reporting because we have seen it, and and the New York Times report suggests that this was not vague intelligence. I want to just read for both of you a small part of this reporting tonight that we have obtained. It says Hamas followed the blueprint with shocking precision. The document called for a barrage of rockets at the outset of the attack, drones to knock out the security cameras and automated machine guns along the border, and gunmen to pour into Israel en masse in paragliders, on motorcycles, and on foot, all of which happened on October 7th. Before I get to you, Peter, I wanna ask you militarily and in terms of your intelligence background, Colonel Layton, how could they have dismissed this threat?
3: Yeah, it is shocking when you read it in these stark terms, Laura. You know, when you look at all the different aspects of this, it was very clear, uh, in retrospect at least, that the planning that Hamas was undergoing was extensively thorough. And then the report continues to say uh, that Hamas conducted an exercise, a major exercise, which was intercepted by Israeli intelligence. The communications surrounding that were intercepted by a unit known as Unit 8200, which is kind of equivalent to the NSA. And they were able to at least determine that this exercise followed the outlines of this Jericho wall plan. And that very fact would be an indicator under normal circumstances that Hamas was serious, that Hamas was getting ready to do something like this. You never, ever put on an exercise hmm. with such precision if you're not going to actually do what you practice in that exercise.
0: Peter, I mean, there's reporting it claims that Israel not only... Perhaps ignored the initial intelligence from a year ago. Um, although, you know, whether it was ignoring it or deciding that it was not capable of being carried out and therefore aspirational. But there was also reporting of another warning just three months before the attack. And I'll read it, it's Israel's. Signal's intelligence agency warned that Hamas had conducted an intense day-long training exercise that Layton was referring to that appeared similar, similar to what was outlined in the blueprint. But a colonel in the Gaza division brushed off her concerns. Now, frankly, this could have been a kind of intelligence coup for Israel, right? Instead, rather than perhaps deterring, if that was possible, there was more than 1,200 Israeli lives lost. Why do you think they were potentially dismissive of this as aspirational? You
4: know, as soon as I heard that people were describing October 7th as, as an intelligence failure, I was very skeptical because that's what we heard after 9-11. Mm. A year after 9-11, the 9-11 Commission came along and we got a lot of information about what intelligence was in the system that policymakers simply were ignoring. And the CIA provided plenty of strategic warning, not to the detail that we're seeing in this case, uh, that al-Qaeda was planning something in the spring and summer of 2001. The Bush administration basically ignored those warnings. And I think whenever there's a surprise attack, you go back, and you look at the signals that were in the system, they were much clearer, of course, in hindsight. But here, this is a classic case, I think, of policy failure. Hmm. The policy failure was kind of presumed that Hamas was basically kind of quiescent, that, you know, Gazans were working in Israel, Hamas was not up to anything, and therefore intelligence that came in to the system that sort of didn't align with that was simply kind of filtered out. And that's a policy failure. Ultimately, uh, you know, the Prime Minister Netanyahu, who, by the way, publicly has blamed the intelligence agencies and then sort of withdrew that blame, you know, he's in charge. Intelligence is providing information to policymakers. They don't make policy. And it's the policymakers' responsibility to ask the right questions about what's going on, and to get the right intelligence, and then when, and also to act on intelligence that might be needed to be acted upon. So I think you know one of the oldest dodges in the book is to blame the intelligence agencies, mm-hmm. because a they op- they, op- they operate in the classified world, so it's hard for them to defend themselves, and b ultimately their bosses are the policymakers. So I was skeptical at the start that this was a classic intelligence failure. I think this is much more of a classic policy failure.
0: Do you think that given what you're seeing in the Times reporting, and of course there are conversations not just about the intelligence analysis, but the policy decisions or what was behind that, I mean, the Times confirms earlier reports that Israel seemed to underestimate Hamas's capability compared to the strength, perhaps, of the Israeli military. And I mean, they thought that they would never be able to pull it off. Was part of that policy decision-making, even if the intelligence had been received, based on one's underestimation of the military might or the process by which they would do, yeah. or arrogance? What was it?
4: I, I think, Laura, that's exactly right. And it reminds me, very it's very like the Yom Kippur War. You know, the, the Israeli cabinet ha- just assu- assumed that Egypt and Israel wouldn't do anything as dumb as attacking them Fifty years ago, during the Yom Kippur War, uh, because they thought e- e- that they thought Egypt, and, Egypt and Syria would lose the war, which they did. However, that didn't mean that they didn't actually launch the attacks. And so, when the Israeli cabinet looked at, at the intelligence that was coming in, but just before the Yom Kippur War, they interpreted Egyptian and Syrian troop movements as training exercises, <laughs> which um, a little bit familiar here, not as preparation for an actual attack. So, I mean, we've seen this movie before. It's Mm. very common. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, it happened again.
0: Colonel Leighton, Peter, Bergen, thank you both so much.
4: Thank you. Absolutely.
0: We do know that eight more hostages were released today. And up next, I'll talk to a doctor whose sister died on October 7th and who's working to help hostages who are coming home.
6: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief
3: medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life, I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life,
7: wherever you get your podcasts.
0: Breaking news, the IDF aerial defense system intercepted on one rocket launched from the Gaza Strip just over an hour before the truce is set to expire at any moment. The fragile pause in fighting between Israel and Hamas could very well be shattered once again. And everything may depend on whether Hamas can locate enough hostages to release. But as more come home, life is forever changed for those whose loved ones never will. 27-year-old Tamar Gutman was missing for weeks after the Hamas terror attack on October 7th until a video sadly confirmed her tragic death. Now her sister, Dr. Arva Gutman-Tarosh, is working to help others who've lost so much in the Israel-Hamas war. She's here with me today along with her friend, pediatrician, Dr. Gila Gavrieli. Doctors, I'm so glad that both of you are, are here today. It is unbelievably heartbreaking to even hear about what has happened, and the personal connection even more so. And I just wonder if you can can talk about the significance of this loss and what you're feeling in a moment like this.
6: Um,
8: so it's, it's very hard. Um, after we found out about my sister, uh, they found the body after that. And... Um, we had a funeral and we set the Shiva, you know, the Jewish tradition, of seven days of mourning. And we decided as a family that we still, in the name of my sister and, you know, on human rights, we, we will fight for the ones that are still alive and still there and can be saved. So um, we decided to do that.
0: Mm.
8: And that's why I'm doing it. I'm still...
0: It's so important to think about, um, there are hostages who have come home, and there are many hostages that are unaccounted for right now, and we don't know where they are, when they're coming home. And I wonder, particularly both of you being doctors, when you think about who is still a hostage, and the Red Cross might not be able to get to them, what concerns do you feel in those moments about the care or the physical conditions they may be in?
6: We're very worried about the, about this. Um, throughout our fight to bring Tamar home, um, we've been part of the Family Forum medical team. And we met with the Red Cross and other organizations several times. There are hostages that have serious medical conditions and need their medical Uh, um, their medicine on a daily basis. We gave the list of medication to the Red Cross. We begged them to make sure that the hostages will get the medical aid they need, they deserve. Um, And as far as we know, it didn't happen. Just several days ago, one of the hostages that was released arrived in critical condition She suffers from hypothyroidism, which it's not even a disease. It's a condition. My mom has it. She needs to take one pill a day. And
0: And if she doesn't, there are some really dire
6: consequences. If she doesn't, she'll be in the condition that she's at now. She's in critical condition. She arrived at the hospital with hypothermia of 82.4 Fahrenheit degrees, Mm. unconscious. Things that we rarely see in the modern world. And we're fighting right now for those hostages. Adva instead of mourning for her sister, is here yeah. fighting for <clears throat> others because we know time is essential. We have to get to them now. They need to get medical aid.
8: Um, and we know that there are others that are injured and still under the capture of the Hamas. We know uh, for fact about a young boy with, you know, with his arm um, hurt and uh, other uh, gunshot wounded, and we don't know if they will survive, if they survived already. You know, some of them got treatment uh, in Gaza, but not the right one. And they are suffering. One of the hostages that was released is suffering from infection and, you know, other um, problems because of the, the treatment, the bad treatment that she got there. So... If they some, got treatment at all. If they got, because some, some of them didn't. So it's, as a doctor, it's very, very... Um,
0: uh, it's FRUSTRATING. FRUSTRATING. Yeah. FRUSTRATING, yeah. And, and painful. Then. I mean, and I wonder too, we're talking about the physical, but I'm a mom. I think about, especially with young children, and we know that the developing mind of young people, that trauma can impact them in ways that even as adults, we don't necessarily consider. They can't communicate the same way. I wonder about, you're a pediatrician. The developing minds of children, what are you concerned about here? Um. First of all,
6: we're concerned about all the kids in Israel, not just the one affected directly by the the massacre that happened on October 7th. A um, couple of days ago, I talked with uh, Professor Gilat Avni, which is uh, the head of the department in Schneider's Children's Hospital, that most of the children and um, who whoever had parents (laughs) arrived with them, um, are uh, hospitalized and getting first medical care. And I asked her exactly your question. And her answer was, well, young children are young children. They can be distracted easily. Right now they're so happy about being released that you don't quite see the trauma but it's there. It's completely Mm. there. And when I asked her about their nutrition status, so they have lost weight, but their mothers are even in worse conditions because they gave their food to their kids in order to survive. Mm. And those are things that that (laughs) we've heard about, you know, over 70 years ago. So the trauma that those kids suffer, it's, it's with them for life. As you said, their mind, the, the, their personality, the way they, they see and, and react with the world has
0: completely changed their mm. trust in human beings. And it's difficult for me to, to sit here and not acknowledge the, the very obvious when we're talking about trauma and grief, what you're experiencing. And I'm very sorry for what you have experienced and what you have lost. Um, You certainly honor your sister in trying to fight for those who remain, but I'm very sorry that we're meeting this way. Thank you. And thank both of you. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be right back. You know, with all the shocking news from around the world, there's actually a case that's happening, perhaps right under your nose, that could have extreme implications in the looming presidential race and for the Republican frontrunner, a man by the name of Donald J. Trump. Now, you may not know what YSL is. You might not have even even heard of someone called Young Thug, but I guarantee you, the former president is thinking about this trial every day. Why? Well, because Fonnie Willis is trying that case, and he, young thug, is facing some of the same charges as Donald Trump. Think the RICO charges everyone's been talking about. And you know, how she does this trial could be the blueprint for how she approaches the trial against Trump. Now, the trial actually began in Atlanta on Monday after a 10-month jury selection process. Yes, you heard that right. Jury selection in that RICO case, with all the defendants, lasted 10 months. The Fulton County DA has alleged the Grammy-winning rapper Young Thug, whose real name is Jeffrey Williams, is the co-founder of a criminal street gang responsible for violent acts dating back 10 years. Prosecutors say that YSL, the acronym for the artist label, Young Stoner Life Records also stands for Young Slime Life, an Atlanta-based street gang affiliated with the National Bloods Gang. And the case has drawn pretty fierce criticism over prosecutors' use of rap lyrics to help buttress their case, allegedly as proof of the gang's very existence. So will they use Trump's speeches, maybe in a similar way, try to prove the case against him? How are there any parallels and how will they be used? We've got with us CNN legal analyst and criminal defense attorney, Joey Jackson, who I'm so glad is here right now. Joey, I have been thinking about this case and I wanted to talk to you about it because a lot's been made about obviously what type of evidence might be used. But take a step back with me. Sure. A RICO case is no walk in the park for the person charged or the prosecutors to prove.
9: It is not at all. So good to be with you, Laura. Listen, this is a big deal. Why is it a big deal? RICO case, and of course, in doing that, what they're saying is that young thug was the boss of this enterprise, right? Prosecutors laying out chapter and verse about a lawless, and and then there's a battle of the narratives, to be clear, but from the prosecutor's perspective, they're saying that he was the head of this. Because of him, there was this lawless activity of murder, of armed robbery, of all of these things, right, which would relate to him getting and marshalling up other people in this enterprise to do his bidding. That's their side of the story in this RICO, right, uh, sort of grand thing that they're laying out.
0: And in a case like this, too, they don't have to prove that he was a part of every act that a criminal enterprise did or that he said with specifics, you do this, you do that. He had to just head it.
9: See, and that's why Rico's so dangerous, right? It's so powerful from a prosecutor's perspective because you do not have to establish that you orchestrated or did everything, Mm -hmm. just that you were the head of the enterprise and you had all of these component parts that were working for you. Of course, the other side of the narrative is that, listen, he is a product of this community. And as a result of that, right, he's talking about, and you mentioned the rap lyrics, Mm -hmm. he's rapping and doing other things that are a product of his life. He's a child of the community who was about up Uplifting people, not about bringing them down. And by the way, why would he have a motivation to engaging any criminal activity, given his wealth, given his stardom, and given all the wonderful things he's doing? But
0: he's so- not rapping about rainbows and lollipops. Let's just be real about this, right? <laughs> and he is, though. Private defense counsel yeah. is trying to talk about. Obviously, he's rapping from an artistic point of view. The lyrics themselves are not essentially confessions of crimes committed, even going as far to try to suggest that the acronyms that are being used in different ways are really just positivity, right? That's one way you're trying to get at it and cleaning up his image. Yes. And I want to just play for everyone for a second these clips, I mean, these lyrics on one part of it. Let me get to it. it um, I want to play that they're going to use as evidence, possibly. Listen to this.
6: almost got popped in Linux of course, I don't know and I don't want to know I don't know of course, if- we saw
0: some of the lyrics in the, in the captions there a lot of it alluded to killings and Beyond and talking about that now it doesn't mean he says it's a confession yeah but the prosecutors say it's part of their case against him.
9: So I say it's nonsense. So a couple of things, right? Going back before we go forward, right? We know that this is controversial, not that it's not uncommon because it has been done and it's been done times a plenty where rap lyrics are used, but why, why should mm. they be? How could we have artistic expression in the form of expression where someone's relating things of their life and things of their community and make the suggestion that it's an element or has anything to do with criminality? And I think Congress agrees because, as you know, Laura, there's mm-hmm. the Rap Act, right? Which is talking about the issue of banning any use of lyrics. We also know that California, now it hasn't passed Congress yet, to be clear. We know California, where it did pass, you cannot use this in any criminal sort of uh, prosecution, meaning rap lyrics, because it is art. And so, how could you make the suggestion that because you may rap in a way that me- people may find offensive, that it has anything to do with any type of criminality?
0: Do you- uh- think in the case of Trump, which, of course, the connection here and why everyone's leaning in is the fact that it's him, is that the RICO blueprint that the prosecutors might use here, instead of rap lyrics... Is it campaign speeches?
9: I think it has to be, right? I mean, with good for the goose, right? So ultimately, I think what the prosecution will do in that particular case is speak to the issue of what he's done in the past, what he said in the past. We know that the lyrics are used. Why? Because it goes to state of mind, because Mm. it goes to motive, because it goes to intent, because it goes to your part of your common plan or scheme. And so, yes, as it relates to Trump, they'll bring in speeches. They'll bring in other things to establish and show what he meant to do. But listen, this is a major, major case. It'll last months, just like Trump's will last months. They have to show a number of acts that were certain, certainly pattern acts that they speak to in terms of what this enterprise was all about. Prosecution says it was about crime. Mm. He says, young thug, this is not about my criminality. I, again, am an embracer and uplift of this community, had nothing to do with it, no motivation for it. And of course, we'll know that Trump will argue speech issues, too. You could say what you want, right? It doesn't mean that you're a criminal.
0: You know what? There's gonna be a lot more of this. At this is an indication, 10-month jury selection, dozens of defendants, little <laughs> down to about five, people testifying against them. We're gonna be watching this trial for a reason. Yes. Joey Jackson, always good to see you.
9: Pleasure and a privilege.
0: Oh man, Joey Jackson. <laughs> Thank everyone. you, Laura. Charles Blow says that black Americans need to move down south. That is if they wanna gain a political foothold. He's going to explain after this. So if President Biden hopes to win reelection in 2024, frankly, he's going to need black voters. But black voters, as you know, are not a monolith and their votes are not guaranteed. Three years ago, Biden had stronger support among black voters than he does today. I mean, look at the numbers and you'll notice that support is even growing for Trump, even if he remains well behind Biden. And of course, Trump is looking to capitalize on the numbers and even grow them. Well, my next guest has a very thought-provoking thesis. You want black voters to have power? Well, it doesn't come down to who is the president, where those voters live.
10: What do we skip over all of the pleading and the begging and the marching and the shouting and go straight to the power. During the Great Migration, about six million Black people left the South for cities in the North and West. I suggest that Black people return to the states with the highest percentages already of Black people where they can gain political power.
2: If we're gonna make a go
10: of it, the South makes a lot of sense.
0: New York Times columnist Charles Blow joins me now. Charles, I'm so glad to see you and I'm so proud of the work that you are doing. So bravo to you to even approach the issue in this way. But why is this the path to power? Well, there's
10: multiple forms of power in America. One that I think is critical for black people and the issues that they care about is state power. Mm -hmm. The Constitution divides the power in this country into two groups. There's, There's federal power and there's state power. There are no cities in the Constitution. So it's just federal and state. And many of the things that black people care most about are most controlled by the states. The criminal code is largely written at the state level, the one that you're going to interact with. Most of them are not going to be you know, sending things interstate mail or whatever. You're not going to violate federal crimes most of the time. Mostly the crimes that you will be charged with are state crimes. Uh, the mass incarceration is largely Predominantly a state and local issue. Most people are not locked up in federal prisons. Federal, the state governments have a lot of say on health policy, educational policy. They also have a, all the say on uh, voting rights and how votes, uh, how elections are administered. These are critical things for Black people. This we've been in the streets marching about all these things. But we turned the eye to the federal government and say, why didn't you fix this? Well, no, we can fix it. You just have to fix it on a state level.
0: But is there, are there concerns about a concentration of power, you know, in terms of like gerrymandering, for example, when you consolidate and then you crack the power and dilute it in different ways? Is that a bigger risk if everyone's in the same area?
10: Well, so I concentrate on state power and statewide races. Okay. For instance, if you, it doesn't matter if everybody in Georgia lives in Atlanta you can still elect the governor, because that's a statewide race. You can still elect both Senators, which they did, because those are statewide races. You can gerrymander to, uh, uh, for the State House, you can gerrymander for uh, the House of Representatives in DC. But it becomes harder and harder and harder to do the more black people you have in the state, which is what your Georgia is running up against.
0: So if you are President Biden or former President Trump, is your strategy now to concentrate your efforts statewide in black voters in particular areas, or is it to be more expansive and think, I gotta keep people spread out for the electoral college system as well? Well, I I
10: wanna flip the question and say, I concentrate on the black voters in that equation. Meaning this, the appeal that they make to you is they come to you at the last hour and tell you to be afraid and say, White people have basically tied, we need you to break the tie. Mm. And when you don't break the tie in the way that they think you should have, they are angry with you, you didn't show up enough, you didn't turn out enough, but you're only 15%. And if you really counted, they really cared about you, you would take like the 2016 example, when Hillary Clinton lost to, to, to uh, Trump, they would have been talking to you, but who were they talking to? oh, we got to win back white working class voters, white working class. We wrote, they wrote the hillbilly elegy. They didn't come to you and say, how do we get you back? What did we do wrong for you? Why did we disappoint you? How can we get you back to Barack Obama levels? That's what power looks like. If they're only coming to you at the last minute, that's not power. That's pleading.
0: Well, Charles Blow has a direction in mind. It's called South to Black Power, an HBO documentary, Is incredibly fascinating. Thank Thank you. you for being here. Thank you. Charles Blow, everyone. We'll be right back. Now, tomorrow's news tonight George Santos, the New York congressman who lied his way into his job, well, the job he currently holds. He is facing a likely expulsion, and it could be as early as tomorrow. And today, he continued his refusal to resign, arguing that he is being bullied in the wake of that scathing ethics report on his conduct. Some group of reporters that he plans to write a book, shocking, and get this, has not ruled out appearing someday on a TV show like Dancing with the Stars. Can't make this up. We'll be right back. Our breaking news, it's midnight, the moment the Hamas-Israel truce is set to expire. But there are urgent questions that are continuing to swirl tonight in the second hour of Lara Coates Live. It's midnight, without a truce in place, what is gonna happen? We've already had the news tonight that the IDF aerial defense system intercepted one rocket that was launched from the Gaza Strip in the last hour. That was just before the truce was set to expire. Rocket sirens were heard in the Surat area over the past few hours. I want to go right now to CNN's Jeremy Diamond in Ashkelon Israel and CNN's chief national security correspondent Alex Marquardt, who is in Washington. Jeremy, it is now the end of the deadline. We haven't heard anything about an extension of a truce from either side. What do you know?
5: Yeah, that's right, Laura. For all intents and purposes, we believe that this truce has now expired. It was slated to expire at this very time, midnight Eastern time, 7 a.m. local time. It is now 7.01 a.m. where I am. And there have already been in the past uh... hour uh not just one but two sirens actually going off in southern Israel there was we know that there was at least one rocket that was intercepted as it was headed in the direction of Sterot Israel where uh, my team has been positioned a lot over the last several weeks We're also now getting uh, the reports of uh, rocket sirens going off in the town of Holit, uh, which is uh, in the south of Sterot, uh, very much closer to the Kerem Shalom crossing, where, of course, we've seen uh, over 100 hostages uh, released um, over uh, the past week, many of those going through that Kerem Shalom crossing. In fact, this fragile truce that has lasted uh, seven days and appears to not be extended into an eighth day has allowed for the release of 86 Israelis, 24 foreign nationals uh, over uh, the course of those seven days. But now it appears uh, that there w- will not be additional hostages released today, at least as far as right now, Laura. We could always see some developments, some late breaking developments uh, that happen after this truce was slated to end. But as of now, if there are no more developments of that sort, we will not see additional hostages be released. And what we will see instead is a return to the fighting in the Gaza Strip. Both sides, Israel and Hamas, have made very clear that if the truce is not extended, they are both prepared to return to the fighting. Now, we did just get an IDF spokesman on the phone Who said that he was uh, waiting for a government directive, but that the military stands uh, prepared for any development. That was just a couple minutes before uh, that truce was slated to expire. I did already hear uh, the noise of jets overhead, uh, which sometimes is an indication of impending bombing in Gaza. We have not heard any explosions yet will certainly keep you posted, Laura.
0: I mean, it's heartbreaking for so many reasons to think about what could come next. And of course, as you mentioned, Alex, I want to go to you. I mean, the fact that there are no more hostages as yet being released, 80 or more, there is still so many who are in that overall tally, including men, um, including others who might we not, not, not know about. The deadline has now expired. Does that mean that we could really see these hostilities resume immediately or is this somehow a bit of a waiting period to figure out if the diplomatic ties or discussions have truly come to an end
1: there are a number of reasons to be pessimistic right now laura the first is that all the sides have been very clear about the timing of this this went into effect seven days ago um, at 7 a.m. local time, midnight Eastern time, and that has now elapsed. Uh, we have heard those sirens. We have heard, we have seen that rocket that was fired uh, out of the Gaza Strip and, and and then intercepted. We should caution: we don't know who fired it. It doesn't necessarily mean it was Hamas. It could have been another group. We've seen other groups firing rockets. It was a solitary rocket. So these are all, uh, you know, elements in the in the in the negative column. At the same time, it has been a remarkably quiet night in terms of the noises that we're hearing out of the different parties. And and there really are uh, five different groups that are involved in this negotiation, countries uh, plus Hamas. And I would just caution that we should probably wait to get some sort of uh, official uh, statement from from any of them or hopefully from several of them before we either declare this dead or alive. Um, We are certainly, all of us, reaching out to our sources in the U.S. government, among the Qataris, uh, the the Egyptians and the Israelis. Um, So we have yet to hear anything. But there was a hope that this would continue into an eighth day, that after seven days of these extraordinary hostage exchanges, uh, that we would see yet another day of women and children, Israeli hostages being released by Hamas. Um, But of course, the fear is, if that doesn't happen, we know that Israel has said from the highest levels, Prime Minister Netanyahu on down, that they are ready to immediately go back to the fighting. Laura?
0: I mean, President Biden was credited by the Prime Minister Netanyahu about his role in what's happened in the last seven days. Is the White House commenting tonight at now this hour?
1: I, I've been reaching out for the past few hours and, and they've been remarkably quiet. I, I think they will surface if if and when they know what's going on. I would just point to last night as well. I I mean, this is a deal that has been extended day by day. And there was a moment last night around this same time, though before midnight, when we thought that this might fall apart Mm -hmm. as well. And what we then learned was that there were several lists that were put forward by Hamas that were deemed unacceptable uh, by Israel. Mm -hmm. Uh, the, The deal was that women and children alive would be Uh, handed over to Israel. And what Hamas had initially proposed was seven women and children and then three bodies. That was rejected by Israel because they all had to be alive. Then there was a second list, seven women and children and three elderly individuals who we believe to be men. That too was rejected. They finally settled on eight women and children who we saw released earlier uh, today on Thursday, so yesterday um and the the belief in going into these seventh and eighth days was that hamas did know where there were more women and children whether they were being held by hamas by other groups or or gangs or families across the gaza strip but that they would probably be able to come up with another group of 10. so that's what we were waiting to to see if that would happen today and and there was a reason to think that that could happen but at the same time laura that Hamas was getting very close to the end of what we believe they had in terms of women and children. Mm -hmm. And then they were going to start probably negotiating for men and Israeli soldiers, at which point it was going to get a lot more complicated. And there was a belief that Hamas might start asking for a
5: higher price. Laura?
0: I understand we've got Jeremy Diamond. There's a statement from the IDF. What is it?
5: That's right. According to the Israeli military, they have, quote, resumed combat against the Hamas terrorist organization in the Gaza Strip. That's a direct quote from the Israel Defense Forces. They say that Hamas, quote, violated the operational pause and in addition, fired toward Israeli territory, an apparent reference to those rocket sirens that I was just talking about moments ago and so it appears Laura that for all intents and purposes uh, military operations fighting in Gaza has indeed resumed and will continue uh, up until there is some other deal to allow for another temporary pause in the fighting to allow for more hostages to be released but as of now the fighting is resuming in gaza according to the israeli military and we know of course that there was a report uh, in the last hour of a rocket being fired from the gaza strip unclear exactly from who of uh, in terms of our ability to independently confirm that but it was fired towards the israeli uh, town of sterot uh, and it was intercepted by the israeli military and now according to the israeli military as a result of that They are resuming their military operations in the Gaza Strip. And I think it's important to underscore what that could mean in terms of Israeli military operations. The Israeli prime minister, his defense minister, Israel's political leadership as a whole has made clear that this operational pause to allow for the release of hostages uh, would not spell the end of the war. They have made clear that what could follow is at least two months of fighting. And they have also signaled very, very strongly that it will involve pushing deeper into Gaza, pushing south of the line uh, of of the river Gaza, effectively, where they have told civilians to head to. Uh, And the Israeli military has signaled that they plan on going after Hamas in the southern Gaza Strip as well, after focusing the majority of their ground operations in the northern part of the Gaza Strip. And that could, of course, mean uh... Um, you know much more significant damage much many more civilian casualties south uh, in in the southern uh... gaza strip and uh... and so you know we'll have to see exactly how quickly the israeli military moves to that next phase of the war, but they have signaled that that will be the case. And we should also note that the Israeli Prime Minister has said that part of why he wants to continue the fighting is because he believes that the pressure on Hamas has worked to get them to where they were at the negotiating table in terms of the hostage release. And if indeed we are moving to a next phase of hostage release, which will involve men, which will involve Israeli soldiers, the Israeli government already knows that those will come at a higher price. And so they want to try and lower that price And the Israeli government believes that it can lower that price in part uh, by uh, pummeling Hamas effectively uh, and pummeling them into submission at the negotiating table as well.
0: I mean, it's hard to believe we're talking about human beings as this sort of capital of terror right now jeremy diamond alex Marquardt will come back to you as you get more information i want to bring in foreign policy analyst barack ravid i mean right now the idea saying they're going to be resuming these military operations we don't know if negotiations are perhaps ongoing behind the scenes and they are using this in some other way or do we what are you expecting to see next
2: First, I'm sure that negotiations are still uh, uh, going on Mm. and the mediators are still working with the parties. But right now we moved from the point where negotiations were uh, taking place while there's a ceasefire to a situation where we are now negotiating under fire. And this is a situation that obviously uh, is much worse for Hamas and much better for uh, Israel. And I think that what we're going to see... In but the why? Next, excuse uh, me. Hours. Why
0: is that, Brog? I want to understand that. Why is this this leverage shift better for Israel in this moment? If you still have hostages, of course, who Hamas may or may not have, can't come up with the numbers. And we seem to be back with the uh, prospect of not knowing where hostages are and violence occurring in the region once again. Why the leverage shift <laughs> to you?
2: Because at the end of the day, what uh, Israeli officials say is that the main goal, okay, is the destruction of Hamas. And Hamas wanted to use this uh, um, ceasefire, this pause, as both as, as a breather and as a way to maybe get to a situation where the pause is so long that Israel will not be able to resume its military operation, especially not the ground operation in southern Gaza. And right now, the Israelis are doing what they said they would do in any case. And they're resuming their operation, and most likely we will see in the next few hours the IDF resuming its ground operation in northern Gaza in one or two neighborhoods that it still uh, hasn't operated in, and in the next few days maybe to southern Gaza. And the Israelis say that uh, the more they will push militarily on the ground, uh, the better are the chances that Hamas will move on the rest of the hostages.
0: What do you make of the reporting from our colleague Jeremy Diamond earlier about the idea of behind the scenes, in part, when you're talking about negotiations, it's the price of the actual people who are being held, women and children in one category, soldiers, adult men in another. When you look at the shift in how negotiations might be, Where do you see that conversation going?
2: Well, I think that when it comes to uh, men that are being held hostage, there are two categories, obviously, either the soldiers or the civilians were taken hostage from the villages around the border. Um, I don't see at the moment uh, Hamas willing to release them for the same uh, price it got uh, in the current pause and the pause that just ended. Uh, I think they will demand a much higher price, a price that the Israeli government, in my opinion, is not only unwilling, but also unable to pay when it comes to Israeli public opinion. And we have to remember, the vast majority of Israelis support the uh, resumption of the war and the operation in southern Gaza. Uh, I think maybe 60%, 65%, maybe even 70% of Israelis support that. So the government uh, and, for example, Prime Minister Netanyahu in his last conversation with President Biden on Sunday he told him that. He told him, you know, if I stop now, you know, public opinion will go against me because there's a, a huge backing by the Israeli people to this operation. So I think that uh, what we're going to see is uh, um, an operation, Israeli operation in northern Gaza right now in the next day or two, and then the Israelis most likely will go to the south
0: speaking of public opinion and first I, I assume you mean talking about the prices associated with hostages it's that ratio of how many Palestinian prisoners or detainees perhaps that ratio might change but I mean, there's another factor in mind in terms of um, the the transfer and the exchange but when it comes to public, opinion. We can't look at it in a vacuum. I mean, there was this huge New York Times report tonight about the possibility that Israeli intelligence forces were aware at least a year ago of a kind of a 40-page battle plan of sorts. It did not necessarily reach Netanyahu, but there are conversations around deterrence and prevention and what to do now. Do you think this, this new reporting has any impact on the way the negotiations will go going forward in terms of Israel wanting to demonstrate a perhaps show of force or to demonstrate that they will, in fact, ensure or require that the negotiation on the Hamas side will actually be kept and the bargain kept?
2: Uh, so first I think that for, for, for Israelis uh, the, the, the reporting in The New York Times is not new, because it sort it was sort of a compilation of several reports that were published by the Israeli press in the last uh, two weeks. And by the way, they're part of a war, internal war in Israel on the narrative around the failure of the war between Prime Minister Netanyahu on the one hand and the Israeli security services and intelligence community on the other hand, which each side trying to put out the the parts of the story that are uh, more comfortable to them. Uh, But at the end of the day, we're looking at here at... uh, huge intelligence failure and a huge policy failure. And both sides, neither side, will be able to escape its responsibility
0: for this. Brock Ravid, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We'll keep coming back to you as well and leaning on your expertise. Everyone, the IDF is saying that the Israel-Hamas truce has expired and military operations have resumed in the Gaza Strip. We'll be right back with a spokesman from the IDF. Our breaking news tonight, the IDF says the Israel-Hamas truce has expired and military operations have now resumed in the Gaza Strip. Joining me now, IDF spokesperson Major Doran Spielman in Tel Aviv. Major Doran Spielman, thank you so much for being here today. Although this news is quite startling for the world to hear, what happened? How did this truce fall apart?
11: Thank you for having me, Laura. Well, around half an hour ago, uh, sleeping Israelis once again woke up to the sound of the, uh, the red siren of Hamas rockets falling at us once again from Gaza. Just like in October 7th, it's the same Hamas that attacked on October 7th with rockets. This morning, once again, they're firing rockets at the Israeli population.
0: And are we clear, are you clear as to who is doing this and the Why?
11: The why, again, we can go back to October 7th. Why did Hamas fire rockets at the Israeli population? Why did they cross over the border and massacre innocent civilians? It says it right there in their charter. They exist in order to destroy the state of Israel and the Jewish people. That is why they did this on October 7th. Why else would they launch rockets out of the blue again today? It just shows that it's the same Hamas, and our mission is far from being done.
0: Has it been more than one rocket? And are there, are we aware of more than one, two, three, do we have any idea of the number at play here?
11: So there have been multiple rockets. Uh, They've been intercepted, which shows that Hamas has moved back into an attacking position Uh, amongst the Israeli people. We intercepted those rockets, thankfully, otherwise they could have fallen on communities, on cities, on kindergartens. Again, we're just now getting back to life after the tragedies of the last 55 days, Children are going back to school here. It's on Friday morning. And once again, we intercepted those. And we've resumed our combat missions against Hamas in the Gaza Strip.
0: Major Spillman, are negotiations somehow still ongoing while the military operations have restarted? Or is that done now?
11: Look, the political echelon can decide to take this, uh, you know, in whatever direction, you know, that they want to. That's always an option for them. They've given us the order as a military that this truce has been violated. Once again, Hamas is committing these atrocities, targeting, again, they are not targeting troops right now. These were, I'm not speaking to you about a mission where they fired directly at troops. These were targeting directly towards civilians. And therefore our goal has always been so that our civilians can live peacefully. Therefore we're back into a combat mode in order to eliminate Hamas which it just shows, even after days of truce, days where we were able to get these hostages, some of them back home, 140 of them are still stuck in those godforsaken tunnels in Gaza, and even release these prisoners, their own prisoners, back, they decided once again to move into attack mode. They started this on the 7th, and here we are once again, it's the same exact Hamas These are the people we're dealing with, Laura.
0: So what will come and happen to the remaining hostages now that combat missions have resumed? Are there concerns that it's going back to around the time of October 7th when you didn't know where the hostages were, that there was um, thoughts that they might be compromised in their safety, not knowing their condition? What happens now with respect to the remaining hostages?
11: Listen, uh, the Israeli people are deeply concerned about our hostages. I mean, it's imagine instead of dropping your kids off at your, you know, your parents' house, you drop them off at Hamas's house and Mm -hmm. Hamas is holding a 10 month old baby, a four year old child, men and women. We don't know if they're alive or dead. I mean, these are the people that are holding the children. We have a lot more information than we have today, than we have on October 7th. We've been hearing these reports coming out of Gaza, horrific reports from the people who've come home. Children, they say, as Hamas put these, each of the children on a motorcycle to bring them to Gaza, they press their legs against the exhaust pipe of the motorcycle to sear their legs with a burn mark so that if they tried to run away in Gaza, they could quickly identify them. This is so, the, the, the monstrosity of what Hamas is doing is exactly what we've been saying, like ISIS, we're deeply concerned. However, what I can tell you is we never would have reached the hostage deal that we reached most recently if we had not operationally pressed them militarily on the battlefield. Like President Biden said, Hamas could give a damn about these people. They will only respond to pressure. We are once back again out to destroy them so that they can never commit this crime in Israel again and along the way bring our people home.
0: Is there any more information about the number of hostages or who is holding them? I asked that question specifically, Major Spielman, because some of the reporting that came out, and hopefully you can illuminate um, these issues for me, indicate that perhaps it's not singularly Hamas that is keeping some of these hostages, which then of course means that who is having a seat at the table might not be sufficient. Do we know if there are other players, other entities in in talks right now or who are holding hostages that need to be addressed as well?
11: The talks are with Hamas, and I'll tell you why. In the same way that Hamas and Hezbollah and the Houthis in Yemen are proxies of Iran, this state sponsor of terror, Hamas are the rulers of the Gaza Strip. There are small break-off terrorist cells And in all of those cases, they are proxies of Hamas. Hamas called the shots in the Gaza Strip. Everybody reports to them. They are the governing body of the Gaza Strip. Let's not forget all of those billions of dollars of international aid money that came into the Gaza Strip. The small amount that was not stolen by the heads of Hamas were distributed by Hamas. Everybody looks to them for responsibility. If they decide that they want to have a truce, as we've seen, they decide all of a sudden there's a truce. If they want to break a truce, It's their call. The attack on October 7th was taken. Thousands of people took part, but all the calls were Hamas. And so this differentiation of the terror groups does not affect the bottom line. It is Hamas's decision to attack, take our people hostage. And it's also in their hands if they want to try to have a shredded dignity and try to let these people come back home.
0: Major Spielman, we are reporting now that Israeli jets are in the air right now. What is Israeli targeting specifically?
11: Just like before, we are targeting Hamas strongholds, Hamas terrorists, the, where they shot those rocket launchers. Any place that we see that there's an imminent threat against Israel, that's obviously the first priority. They can press a button right now and they can target children in Tel Aviv, in Jerusalem, in the north of Israel and in the south of Israel. And so operationally, wherever Hamas are operating and planning these attacks, those are the first place we're, we're going We can imagine and we know the way Hamas operates, right? We could write the script right now. Hamas right now are going underneath schools, underneath mosques, inside of hospitals, and getting their rocket launchers ready. And the reason is is they know that we have to stop them, just like, of course, any country trying to protect their citizens would attack the terrorists. And when we do, they're going to hold up a flag. I think we should all get ready. We'll see it in the next 24 hours, saying the IDF, Israel attacked a school a mask. We all know the the mask is down. This is Hamas's script. They are writing. We cannot allow ourselves to fall back into their hands and believe because, of course, they are manipulating this entire situation.
0: The notion of taking that bait is something certainly we have seen, or the fear of doing so. But in that same vein. There has been a lot of criticism that has been directed towards those who are viewing any military strategy that might involve um, the collateral damage of civilians. Knowing Hamas's MO, knowing where they place strongholds according to the intelligence and beyond, will you continue to target those areas where civilians might be located as human shields?
11: I I totally understand the question, and this is obviously something that we are thinking about every day. This is extremely difficult because we don't want civilians to die. We don't want Israeli civilians to die from these barrages of rockets. We don't want to see Gazan civilians die, but Hamas is operating directly from within these areas, and we have to ask ourselves, what is the alternative? If we do nothing, if we lay down our arms, we're just going to allow Hamas to carry out another massacre like October 7th. I think morally, That is completely unconscionable, and no country in the world would allow it. The first priority is to protect the Israeli civilians, and we are doing so with as much precision as we can, knowing that the people that we're fighting against, Hamas, are holding hostages, are holding their own civilians around the neck and shooting. Imagine a lone shooter, Laura. Imagine thousands of lone shooters, each of them holding a civilian and shooting at your population. We can't just sit by and let this happen, and we call on the international community to demand... That Hamas leave civilian areas if they want to fight Israel, go into an open area, have a little bit of courage and fight us one on one. Leave your civilians out of this. Let them go back to being safe.
0: Major, has the, the week long pause, has that had any impact on the military strategy going forward?
11: We've been ready militarily, and the reason is, unfortunately, we're not dealing with a reasonable group on the other side. It would be wonderful if we had looked at this pause and thought that they would reform their ways, but we know Hamas. We've been dealing with this for years, and even in recent days, Laura, they've said their plan is to carry out October 7th again and again and again. Therefore, operationally speaking, we have been ready when the time comes to defend our civilians and to find Hamas wherever they are and eliminate them. Because without that, at the end of the day, the Israelis, doesn't matter if they're living on the border with Gaza, even in the center of Israel, they cannot go to sleep at night knowing that there are murderers out there that are seeking to kill them.
0: Major Doran Spielman, thank you so much.
11: Thank you, Laura, for having me.
0: Our breaking news, we're watching all the developments in the Middle East tonight where the IDF says the Israel-Hamas truce has expired. Military operations have now resumed in the Gaza Strip. Our breaking news tonight, the IDF says that the truce between Israel and Hamas has now expired and military operations have now resumed in the Gaza Strip. I want to bring in CNN military analyst and retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. Also with us, Alex Plitsis, who is a former Pentagon counterterrorism official. Thank you both for being here. Colonel, the truce is over. What do you expect to see on the battlefield in the coming hours?
3: Yeah, Laura, so it looks like, based on what Major Spielman told us uh, just a few minutes ago, it looks like the Israelis are going to resume attacks probably in the north, uh, but they are going to rapidly move down into the central part of Gaza and then into the south. Uh, So they've made no secret, Laura, of where they want to go. Uh, They are basically here to destroy Hamas as much as they possibly can, and every effort uh, they will make is going to be geared to achieving that goal. Uh, That goal will mean uh, that they are, I won't say ignoring uh, President Biden's and Secretary Blinken's uh, desires that they uh, maintain a civilian safety corridor. Uh, But it's going to be very hard for them to do something like that. and I'm afraid we're going to see a lot of civilian casualties coming up in the next uh, next few hours, next few days, uh, if, if those operations continue like I think they will.
0: I mean, we've seen what's going on already in the humanitarian crisis in Gaza, for example, in addition to what has happened in Israel, and the idea of the ground operations or otherwise resuming. We are well aware from even recent times about the collateral impact to people who are civilians and innocent lives as well in Gaza. Alex, throughout the day, it seemed as though both Israel and Hamas were on board to possibly extend the truce, to release more hostages. The big question tonight is why this has broken down. The major alluded to the idea of a rocket being fired, but is there more, do you think?
2: Yeah,
12: I mean, there's uh, the way the process has worked is that the uh, Hamas has handed over a list of proposed uh, hostages that they want to hand back. No list was handed over, uh, was my understanding. There's been a couple of instances of rockets being fired, as well as some explosions and gunfire earlier this week. But it didn't seem that there was a sustained effort to really try to uh, you know, reinitiate uh, the conflict from, from the Hamas side. Uh, but it really seems to boil down to the hostage side and them not handing over a list and not getting what they want in return. And I don't think there's appetite in Israel to stand by to allow that to happen. Uh, the recent polling data, I think, said about 90% of the Israeli populace said they wanted the hostages back. And about that same number so that they wanted to see Hamas eradicated. So uh, no hostages means a resumption of military activities.
0: So what do you think negotiators in Qatar are doing right now to try to maybe save this truce or, or get it back on a kind of track? And of course, we both realize and we've been hearing from both sides that following the release of hostages and beyond sure. that it will resume. What's happening behind the scenes you think in Qatar?
12: I think you're exactly right. That's the that's where the negotiations will be happening. Those discussions are are likely ongoing with people trying to salvage it. Those directly involved and probably outside parties who have had an interest and have been trying to spur, uh, you know, a permanent ceasefire, which I yeah. don't see as being likely. So they're probably asking for, you know, those hostages in return. And don't forget, in recent days, we've seen, you know, uh, requests for proof of life for certain hostages they weren't able to find. And so we don't know as well as if the Israelis asked for specific information on hostages and it wasn't provided. And that could also be a catalyst for this.
0: Colonel, the U.S. has been pleading with Israel to prevent the massive loss of civilian life if the fighting resumes. How will they do that and still meet their objective, as he has said, of destroying Hamas?
3: It's going to be really difficult, Laura. And, uh, you know, as Major Spielman allu- alluded to, uh, the way in which Hamas intersperses itself throughout the population in Gaza and how they use facilities like schools, like hospitals, other civilian institutions, uh, that's going to be uh, a compounding factor in this and it's going to uh, make it even more difficult for the Israelis to target these areas with precision. Uh, so they may desire... The Israelis may desire to precisely attack certain areas, but it may be impossible not to hit civilians as they go after, uh, you know, certain elements of Hamas. And, of course, if Israel finds uh, leadership elements of Hamas, uh, you can be pretty sure that they're going to go after those leadership elements, and uh, I can almost assured with that same degree of certainty that those leadership elements are also interspersed within the civilian population of Gaza, wherever it may be found, whether in the North or the South.
0: Well, Alex, I mean, if the IDF goes into Gaza and conducts operations the same way they did in the North, are they risking losing the, well, it's been decreasing support from the international community in terms of the military tactics that are used?
12: Yeah, I mean, I think when we see the civilian casualties or the humanitarian situation, we've seen um, you know a decrease in support in certain cases from from countries and, and people worldwide. But the Israelis have an obligation to defend their population and to make sure that Hamas can't conduct this type of attack again. Now, as the colonel just mentioned, they're going to start in the north and try to finish up the clearance operations inside Gaza City and then move towards central Gaza and then finally in the south. Where it's going to complicate it here is that of a population of 2.2 million you know, 1.1 million north of Wadi Gaza were sent south where they were told that that was where they needed to be to, to, you know, remove themselves from the battlefield. They're not going to be allowed to go back north according to the IDF. So they're still going to be in the battlefield. It's swelled to twice the normal number of folks. And the IDF has said that they have declared, you know, certain areas in the south will be humanitarian zones where there won't be military action. Uh, but people are going to have to try to get there. There's a lot of people that have to move around. So I think it's going to limit the ability to use air power to a certain extent. And it's definitely going to raise the you know the risk to the IDF troops on the ground. So we may see uh, some difficult fighting yet, uh, you know, possibly more difficult than we've seen so far in the north.
0: Colonel Layton, Alex Pleistis, thank you so much. I just can't imagine what the families of those whose loved ones remain as hostages are thinking and feeling tonight. Our breaking news, the IDF says that it has resumed combat operations against Hamas, accusing the militant group of violating the truce agreement by firing rockets toward Israel. Next, I'll talk to a woman whose cousins were taken hostage and freed. breaking news, the IDF says that it has resumed combat operations against Hamas, accusing the militant group of violating the truce agreement by firing rockets toward Israel. But what about the hostages who remain in Gaza? And what's going to happen now that hostages are likely still there? And of course, the civilian population in Gaza. Who is has already seen the effects of a spiraling humanitarian crisis. I want to bring in Abby Own, Her cousins, 12-year-old Eres and 16-year-old Sahar Calderon, were taken along with their father, who is still a hostage. Their family is still fighting for the rest of the hostages to come home. Abby, your cousins were returned to your family. We just talked two days ago. Thankfully, they are now home. Their father, Ophir, is still in captivity. When you heard the news tonight, this morning for you, that the truce is over, are you concerned?
7: Of course I'm concerned. It's heartbreaking, but also not surprising. We have seen small infractions of this ceasefire along the way, not getting lists of hostages on time, the ICRC not going in, and then this morning, you know, fire toward Israel. So it makes sense, but it is, it's really disappointing.
0: Are you in touch with any other families who still have their relatives in Gaza? Have there been communications about yeah. what's happening?
7: Yeah. I mean, there are so many of us that still have men, not, not men of a fighting age, but also just men that have not been considered among that list of children or mothers. Um, and that's now the bigger fight is how do you get home this other category, which it feels crazy that we have to categorize humans in any sense, but I think any family member will do whatever they can to bring home their family. And now we're, we're in an even bigger fight.
0: How are your cousins doing, Eres and Sahar? I mean, had they told you anything about what their captivity was like?
7: They, we, we know kind of about their physical um, situation, that they weren't eating a lot, that they couldn't access bathrooms when they needed to. But in the, the last few days, we've seen, you know, despite them being skinny and pale, that um, they've been able to do things. They have been able to move around the hospital. They're still there. Um, and we're, we're not asking them questions, right? We were told not to ask them anything and just to let them mm. share as they will. Are
0: you nervous about what life will be like with the hostilities resuming? I mean, about what it could mean yes. really now for the safety of, of all Israelis?
7: Yeah, this is the first time since October 7th that we haven't had sirens, that we haven't been running to bomb shelters. You know, my kids go to sleep at night, they say, are we going to have a siren tonight? They know to get ready when they go to sleep, to put their shoes near the door, to have a sweatshirt ready if they need to run to a bomb shelter. And this ceasefire has given us a respite in all of that. And I woke up this morning with a pit in my stomach, like, oh my God, we're going back to it. There was this moment of these hostages are being released, there weren't sirens. There was a a moment that felt like movement, that felt like forward progress, and now it feels like we're going backward.
0: Abby Owen, thank you so much. Thank you. Our breaking news tonight, the IDF says it has resumed combat operations against Hamas, accusing the militant group of violating the truce agreement by firing rockets toward Israel. Now the fighting has continued again. What will happen next? be right back (laughs) u.s secretary of state antony blinken is leaving israel and now heading to dubai Our breaking news, the IDF says it has resumed combat operations against Hamas, accusing the militant group of violating the truce agreement by firing rockets toward Israel, minutes after the week-long truce broke down on Friday, their time. Israeli military vehicles were firing in northwest Gaza, according to the Hamas-controlled Ministry of Interior in Gaza. In a statement, the ministry also said Israeli aircraft were in the skies above the area. Thank you for watching. Before we go, a sneak peek at the all new CNN film, Chilla, which tells one of the most shocking true crime stories you've never heard.